This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, be with us now as we come to your word. May we have ears to hear and hearts to receive what your instruction is for us through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. Have you guys ever been in a conflict? Yeah? Ever been in a conflict? Yeah. Uh, Anybody been in a conflict this morning? Okay, all right. Uh, But yes, (laughs) most of us have been in conflicts before. And if you have ever been in a tough situation with somebody that you really love and that you really care about, there are probably a mix of emotions that you experience when you're in conflict, right? In one sense, you may be really nervous about the things that you need to say to someone. And in the other sense, you may be uh, really ready to just have things done and over with. Amen? Amen? Which one are you? The like, I'm nervous about this or I really just want to get this done and over with kind of people, right? I feel like I'm a combination of those both, (laughs) where I may be nervous to to say something hard to somebody that I really love, but I'm also somebody who doesn't like to let things dwell for a very long period of time. I just can't handle it. And what's really interesting about that is I married Rachel, (laughs) right? And every time we fight, she cannot go any more than like five minutes without saying, okay, we need to sit down and talk about this. (laughs) Um, So it's been a good balance for us. And uh, actually having to like work through things, I actually think that that's been a great gift from God that she has been able to just like dive in and tackle the issue head on. Um, But it has also been something that I have noticed within myself that I have my own tendencies that may not be glorifying to God. Uh, If pastoring has taught me anything, it has taught me the reality that you cannot avoid tough situations and especially tough conversations. At times, when we come into conflict, we anticipate the absolute worst of situations. And for my my fellow elders and deacons that have been involved in conflicts and navigated those waters with me, I think you guys know especially what I mean when when we face those kind of uh, anticipations. We may think that it's going to be as worse as possible. That's our temptation to say, this is going to just end up with the church blowing up and people feeling really poorly, and we are going to absolutely hate this. We always think of the worst case scenario. But I have, at the same time, seen that come to life, yes, but also seen God work in miraculous ways through really tough situations to bring about unity and a gospel-centered church family through conflict. How do you handle conflict when it comes your way? Do you, are you tempted to be really nervous about what's coming up? Are you tempted to run away from tough conversations and situations? When we come to John chapter 13, we're going to hear Jesus continue to tell the disciples that something really tough is coming his way. He's been telling them in the last few verses that something is going to come where he's going to be betrayed. And right here in our passage this morning, he's going to reveal that not only is someone going to betray him, but someone within their inner circle is going to betray him. And so you can imagine the conflict that exists within this group of people. The people that are supposed to be the closest to Jesus, the people that are supposed to love him the best, the people that should never, ever leave him are the ones who will indeed fail him. 
And it's right in the middle of this anticipation that Jesus gives us a command as his followers that goes against every grain of the temptation of our hearts to run away, to flee these situations, and it's the command that he gives us, a new command to love one another. So my argument for us this morning from John 13 is this, that if we are going to glorify God, we must do so by loving one another to the end. Loving one another to the end. In John 13, right at the beginning of the chapter, we hear in verse 1, Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We're to see from Jesus' example how we can love one another to the end. But first, if we're going to see that call, we have to see at least the ways that we fail. We fail often through the examples we see in John 13, 21 through 38, either through betrayal or denial. Through betrayal or denial. So let's look at these two scenes. First, we can at least see Jesus' anticipation of the betrayal of Judas in, in verses 21 through 33. Right there in verse 21, it tells us that when Jesus had said these things, that's what he just said in verses 18 through 20, that there would be one who would eat the bread that would raise his heel against him, right? And this kind of prophetic language of the fulfillment of the, prophe- the prophecy that was in Genesis 3.15, that the son of man or the seed of the woman would come and destroy the serpent. And the serpent would strike his heel, but he would crush his head. And so Jesus says that there's going to be one who comes and eats the bread that will strike his heel and go against him. But in verse 21, we see, how does Jesus feel about what he has just said? It says that he was troubled in his spirit. Does anybody know the last time in John's gospel where Jesus was troubled in his spirit? Anybody? It was just maybe a couple chapters right before John 13. Lazarus, yes, exactly. So Lazarus had been dead, and when he heard the news of Lazarus' death, It says that he was deeply troubled in his spirit, and he wept over Lazarus. So I hope that this gives you some encouragement, guys, that as you think of your own conflicts and your own situations, we often feel a lot of emotions when we come to those sort of things. Jesus, the Son of God, as he came to this moment where he just told them that based on Psalm 41, verse 9, someone would raise their, their heel against him, How did he respond? He responded by being troubled in his spirit. The Son of God, the one who spoke creation into existence in his humanity, felt deep distress over what was to come. And so he testifies and he says to them, truly I tell you, based on these things, that person is going to be one of you. That person will be one of you. And you can imagine as Jesus delivers this, as he's sitting and reclining with the 12 at the table, the conversation must have been like, what is he talking about, right? What is he saying? In fact, that's actually what we see from Peter and John, at least. In verse 22, the disciples started looking at one another, uncertain to what he was really speaking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, that's John's really humble way of saying that he was close with Jesus, okay? He reclined, And sitting beside Jesus, Simon Peter motioned to him and said, Hey, 
figure out what he's talking about. What is he saying? So John leans back against Jesus, and he asks him, he says, Lord, who is this? And Jesus doesn't veil his answer. He doesn't speak some sort of parable to John. He says to him this in verse 26, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I have dipped it. When he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. And after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And so Jesus told him, what you're doing, do quickly. So Peter and John have this relationship with Jesus that's even closer to than the the entire group of the twelve. They are Jesus' best companions, the people that he's relying on the most within this circle of his uh, disciples, his followers that were leading and helping and teaching and expanding his gospel ministry. And as he talks to Peter and John, we at least see this intimacy of their relationship where one, Peter and John have enough confidence to ask Jesus, hey, who is this? Can you clarify what you mean? And Jesus then goes on to actually respond with a, a clear and direct answer to them. We've seen at least in other scenes through John's Gospels, as Jesus has been asked to explain himself, he does so based on what he thinks is best for that particular person. So Peter and John are given a a piece of information that Jesus determines would be best for them to know in light of what's about to happen. The other disciples, as they're seeing this, verse 27 tells us that, um, I'm sorry, verse 28 that none of those that were reclining at the table knew why he had said this to him, to Judas. They weren't really up to speed with the information. So Peter and John know, okay, Judas is about to go and betray Jesus, but the other guys at the table are thinking, okay, well, something must be going on. In fact, verse 29 tells us that they think that Judas is going to go do something with the money that they have collected together as disciples. So Judas was kind of the accountant of the circle, right? So he goes, and they think, oh, okay, he's going to either go do something for the poor, or he's going to go buy the things that we need in order to celebrate the festival. Does anybody actually know what festival they're celebrating? What was that whisper? Oh, the Passover. Oh, okay, great, great. You guys are are following along. That's awesome. (laughs) All right, so yeah, they're celebrating the Passover, And uh, what we find out is right in verse 30, after Jesus does this, the disciples don't understand what's going on. We see in verse 30, after receiving the piece of bread, he left immediately. Notice this language at the end of verse 30. And it was night. That is super significant as we come to this passage. In John 1, we hear that the word has come and has come to be the flesh that would dwell among us. God's revealed word coming to dwell and live among us. And how did he come? He came as the light of the world. The beginning of John 8, Jesus starts to tell the Jewish people that he is the light of the world, that he has come to reveal God's plan. But the opposite of light is darkness. And in John 13, as Jesus knows that this hour has come for him to depart, in John 13, 21, as he comes with his spirit troubled, we find out why he's troubled. It's because of what we hear at the end of verse 30. The night is upon us. 
the darkness has come. This mission that Jesus has been set apart for is the mission that is going to come to light or at least be exposed to us in the remaining chapters of John's gospel. So he is troubled because of what he sees, and he knows that the darkness is coming. So in the first example of ways that we see that this failure or rebellion against Jesus is it through betrayal. But there's also the sense in which we fail through conflict in our denial. So let's look to Simon Peter and how he responds from this situation. It, what's interesting is verses 31 through 35 are kind of separated from this entire category. This is actually what we would call an inclusio uh, within John's gospel. It's a fancy word to say sandwiching, right? So we talked about this last week, right? What makes up a good sandwich? Two pieces of bread and stuff in the middle. We talked about peanut butter and jelly people, and we talked about ham and cheese people, right? So whatever you put in the middle, hey, that's up to you, right? You can't go wrong with PB&J, and it's also good to have some, some meat, I prefer bacon in the middle of my sandwiches, but you already knew that. Um, But nonetheless, a sandwiching structure shows us two responses, and then in the middle of that response is like the the clear teaching motivation. So verses 31 through 35 are the middle of this sandwich in John 13, 28 through 31, or 21 through 38. So right in the middle, 31 through 35, we're just going to pull that out of the structure to see the two other pieces that are bookending this. So after Jesus has done this with Judas and the disciples around, he hears in verse 31, he declares to them that the Son of Man is going to be glorified, and God is going to be glorified in him. And in verse 33, he tells them that he's leaving. In response to his leaving, Peter then goes on to talk to Jesus in front of everybody and goes, Jesus, where are you going? Now, is this the first time that Jesus has told them that he is not going to be with them? No? Anybody think of another time that that has happened recently in John's gospel? Go ahead, flip back. It's good. You're going to open your Bible, you flip back. I'll I'll give you this. It's after John 7 and before John 10. Give you a, a broader spectrum to look at there. <laughs> That's not eight, <laughs> but it's close. <laughs> Maybe. We're getting warmer. <laughs> I'm sorry, it was actually John 8. <laughs> it was John 8. In John 8, verse 21, Jesus is before the Jewish leaders. He has just declared that he is the light of the world. And in that passage, he tells them that he's going to go away to be with the Father. And in John 8, 21, it tells us, I'm going away, you will look for me, and you will die in your sin, because where I'm going, you cannot come. This is how Jesus responds to this information to the Jewish leaders. And so how do the Jews respond? Well, verse 22 tells us, so the Jews said again, he won't kill himself. Will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come, they think that he is going to go off and kill himself in this situation, but Jesus responds with even more confusing language for them. He says, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world, therefore I told you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so they say to him, 
Who are you? Who are you? And Jesus' salty response was this. Verse 25, exactly what I've been telling you from the beginning. (laughs) Man, Jesus was so good at just working these guys. (laughs) Exactly what I've been telling you that I was from the very beginning. Verse 26, I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true, and what I have heard from him, these things I will tell the world. This is quite the declaration. It's not just to the Jewish people, though. Notice that? These things that I have to say about you, I will tell to the world. And that's what's coming to light here in John 13. He's going away. He's going to go be with the Father. Why? To reveal to the world the Father's plan. To save his people. How is that? Through the glorification of the Son of Man. And so Peter says, where are you going? And Jesus answers him and says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. You notice that. You cannot follow me now. He doesn't say that Peter's not going to follow him. This is different than what he says to the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders. He says, This to Peter, where he says, where I'm going, you can't come now, but you will follow me later. And Peter has this like change of heart from John 13 in the beginning of the passage where, you know, remember as the foot washing was happening and Peter comes around and and Jesus is with him and he's about to wash his feet. And Peter's like, you can't do that, Jesus. I'm not going to let you be my servant. And Jesus tells him, Peter, I have to do this because if I don't do this, then you're not with me. And Peter's response is like, okay, then don't just wash my feet, wash my whole body, right? And he's like, Peter, you don't understand, (laughs) okay? I'm setting an example for you. And now Peter, it's almost like in the end of the chapter here, he's trying not to get caught in the same situation that he was in just at the beginning of the chapter. So rather than saying, I'm not going to let you do this, he says, okay, if you're going to go, then I'm going with you, and I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus says to him, will you? Will you, Peter? But he's already declared that he will. Not through Peter's response. Jesus, remember, where I'm going, you cannot come now, but you will come later. And then Jesus goes on to prophesy of Peter's denial before the rooster crows. He will deny Jesus three times. And if we're familiar with John's gospel, after Jesus has been arrested three times, people intervene and ask Peter, aren't you one of those followers of Jesus? And he denies them all three times. There's a few things for us to just kind of work through as we look at the situation with Judas and the situation with Peter. If you were coming through and looking at Judas, I hope that this question may have come to your your mind. What is with the demonic possession of Judas in verse 27? If we look at John 13 as a whole, we found out in John 13 verse 2 that when it was time for the supper, that the devil had put it into the heart of Simon Iscariot, that is Judas, to betray Jesus. 
And then here in our passage, we find out that, Simon, or that Judas is the one who's going to betray Jesus. And in verse 27, Judas eats the bread, and it tells us that Satan enters into him. So I hope that you're asking the question of, what is with demonic possession? Is this a reality, right? Now, this may sound a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs as we come to this, right? You might be a little afraid of talking about demonic possession or demonic oppression. And so I, I hope to clarify just for a moment what the difference between the two of those things is and whether or not Christians can actually be possessed by demons. So I'll, I'll just start with an answer to that question. Can Christians be possessed by demons? The answer to that is no. Okay? So now, what's up with Judas in this situation? Let's, let's try to figure that out. So there is a difference between demonic oppression and demonic possession. Demonic oppression is the idea of having influence over a person to encourage them to a sinful behavior. Demonic possession, though, is the idea that a person has been completely taken over. So, according to the New Testament, we can find out that because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Christians cannot be possessed by demons. Now, this is really Really important that you note the language here. Christians cannot be possessed by demons because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is greater than the spirit of those that are in the world. Okay? Now, in light of that, what do we do with spiritual warfare? Because there are people who are like slaying demons and wrestling demons and doing that in the world and saying that they're doing this in the name of Jesus. What do we, what do, we do about that? Okay? So what we must recognize is that the New Testament does talk about spiritual warfare is a reality, right? Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of the darkness. So spiritual warfare is a reality, okay? Now, is it the reality that you may see in what would be an extreme version of what I would call spiritual warfare within the world? Now, that's up for conversation. I can't say that there's a great answer to that, but what I can say is this, is that When we see spiritual warfare in the New Testament, we recognize that it's a reality that um, from Acts onward, that there's a really interesting thing that's happened within the Gospels. Jesus tells the disciples, especially those 12, to go and to fight against those demons and those powers and uh, to cast out demons specifically. But from Acts onward, throughout the rest of the New Testament, not once in the rest of the New Testament, do you see the apostles teach followers of Jesus to cast out demons? Okay? Notice that. Nowhere else outside of the Gospels do you see the instruction of believers to cast out demons. But what you do see is the instruction to resist, to wage war, and to flee the devil. Okay? To to resist, to wage war, and to flee the devil. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18 is a really important passage for us to think through within that, as well as James 4, 7. Okay, so if you're taking notes, those might be two good passages for you to go back to and look at. So within the New Testament, we see spiritual warfare is a reality, and that believers outside of the Gospels from Acts onward are instructed not to cast demons out of believers, but to wage war against demonic oppression. Okay. So that's a helpful clarification, I hope, for us. 
So what do we do with Judas now as we come to this gospel story? How could Judas have been possessed by Satan? Well, one of the really helpful notes for us here is to look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. At this point in the Gospels, friends, does the Holy Spirit indwell people? No, he doesn't. It's not until Acts chapter 2 that we see the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And even within Acts, there are moments where we're seeing people being prayed over and their hands being laid on people, then they're receiving the Spirit. In Acts, or in Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 1, we hear about the sealing of the Holy Spirit upon people. Uh, Paul talks about this reality in 1 Corinthians as the Holy Spirit dwells within his people. So in this situation with Judas, I think it's fair for us to say that Judas does not have the Holy Spirit. So did Judas believe Jesus? Did he believe in the words of Jesus? Well, we could say somewhat yes. Was Judas changed by the words of Jesus? Was Judas changed by the life of Jesus? Was Judas transformed by the gospel of Jesus? The evidence that John's gospel at least gives to us is that that answer is likely no. It's likely no. That though he may have heard the words, though he may have been in the circle of Jesus, though he may have been around and hanging around him, we can at least see, especially with the situation with, with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, Judas was upset about what was glorifying to God. He didn't celebrate it. He wasn't transformed. Now, you may not come to the same agreement with me on that. That's okay. That's fine. But I think at least from the evidence we can pull together of this particular situation through John's gospel lens, I think that this is the best answer we can have from Scripture. So in light of that, then as we look at Peter too, we may be tempted to think of Peter's situation and go, Peter, you fool. (laughs) Here you go again, making an absolute mockery of your testimony. What are you doing, man? You're going to go and die with Jesus, and he, then he just calls you out right on the spot? <laughs> says, no, no, you're not going to do it just like that. While G- Judas might be a clear example of like, okay, that is scary, and that's what not to do, Peter, you want to like affiliate with somewhat here, right? Because he's making bold claims, and you want to be bold for the Lord. That's a good thing that the, the New Testament says is honoring to God. He's willing to die for Jesus. He's willing to lay it all down. That's good stuff. But this picture that Peter portrays of himself isn't actually the reality of his own heart, at least in this situation. Peter is going to go on to deny Jesus. He will go on to die like Jesus. Church history tells us that he'll be crucified upside down at his own request so that he wasn't crucified in the same way as Jesus. So he would end up living this all out. But it's not necessarily the heroic, yeah, let's go experience that we may want it to be here in John 13. And as we look at it, we must recognize a couple things. First of all, this didn't surprise Jesus. Jesus was not surprised by Peter's response. Jesus knew this. That's what John 13, 1 tells us. 
He knew that the hour had come. But even John 13, verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. Jesus knew what was going to come out of this situation. So it wasn't a surprise to him. But we also must recognize that, like Peter, we are a people who are prideful. And we have to combat our pride. We may want to say things like, we wouldn't do it that way. We wouldn't fall into the trap of being bold like that and then not living up to the, the things that we've actually declared. But the reality is, is that that's exactly what we do. We say, God, I want to give my life for you. I want to live in a way that glorifies you. And we, we make that declaration, and then the next moment, we may even fall into sin. Guys, we are just as easily able to fall into sin as Peter was. And while it may not be through the boldness of our declarations, we can at least see that there is sin in our lives, is there not? Maybe you're like me. Have you ever promised God that you wouldn't do that sin again? Right? Maybe for some, it's like, God, I'm not going to look at porn. God, I'm not going to get angry with my kids. God, I'm not going to let my tongue get the best of me here and have to respond in a really sharp way. God, I'm not going to look at those people like they're lesser than. I'm not going to hold on to resentment anymore, God, because it's poisonous. Guys, have you said these things to the Lord? Like me? Have you said these things in your heart? Said, God, I'm not going to do that. We make these big declarations, and then what happens? We fall short. Why do we fall short? Because we're works in progress. The Bible tells us that all fall short of God's standard. We are sinners in need of a Savior. We are not perfect works yet. And sometimes we're tempted to think that our sin is so ugly that we must disengage or reject what's difficult in following God. And so we, we just try to avoid it, right? We just say, okay, this is there. I don't like it. It's ugly, so I'm just going to leave it in its place and just maybe hope that it kind of goes away. Anybody done that before too? While it's ugly, we must see the reality of what Scripture teaches us. John's later letter, his first letter, 1 John, he tells us that there's no other way to enter into the grace of God than to face the music, to come with our sin before God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1, 9. You know what's right before verse 9? Verses 6 through 8. Where he says there that if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar and the truth does not exist in us. We've got to face the music, guys. We're sinners. We need God's forgiveness. And it's, it's not to run away from our sin. Rather, it's actually to run to the Lord with our sin and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I need you. 
It's ugly to face the music, but there's only one way to do it. Not to hide, but to run to Jesus. And while we do that, what we may fear, maybe, maybe you're like me, maybe you've been concerned that, okay, if I confess this sin to my brothers or my sisters, or if I confess this sin to my fellow elders or my friends, they're going to look at me and they're going to think that I'm weak. Have you ever been tempted by that? Right? Because the American picture of the man is that we're strong, right? We're strong, we're able to do this. The American picture of people is that we're strong and we're able to do this, right? We're supposed to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're going to see problems and we're going to say, not getting in my way, we're going to run at this. 1 Corinthians 4 gives us a much different picture of what actual strength looks like. Because gospel strength actually looks like weakness. It looks like people who are feeling like they're beaten down, burdened, oppressed, like they can't get back up, they can't tell left from right. And those kinds of people not just wallowing in that, but coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, this is exactly how I feel about this. I don't know if I can make it, but I trust that your strength can get me through it. Please help me, O Lord. Have you been there this week? Maybe you're feeling oppressed and burdened and beaten down, shipwrecked, destroyed. Have you run to the Lord? Don't make the same mistake that I have. Think that you can pick it up on your own. What you find out is it's that crushing weight that you can't lift by yourself. I think of 1 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, is really helpful to us. Let's read them for you. Let the Spirit do His work in our hearts as we, we hear this passage. Second Corinthians 12, not 1 Corinthians 12. That's about the gifts of the Spirit. Totally different letter. So if you are, yeah, don't write down 1 Corinthians 12. It's a great passage of study, but not what we're looking for in this moment. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Paul's talking to the Corinthians, and he tells them that in light of all that he's experienced, he pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord responded like this to him. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Brother, sister, you need that this morning? My grace, Jesus' grace is sufficient for you. His power is perfected in your weakness. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us boast all the more gladly about our weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in us. Let us take pleasure in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties for the sake of Christ. Why? Because when we are weak, that's when we're actually strong in him. So we've got to combat our pride. We'd fall into sin too. We're tempted to respond in betrayal or denial, but Jesus gives us a new way to glorify God through a new command, a tough command. Love one another. Look at verse 34 and 35. I give you a new command, love one another, just as I have loved you, 
you also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I love how John portrays this. You notice in these two verses, love one another is said three times, and love is said another two times, like five times in two verses. John is just trying to deliver the news from Jesus to us. What is it? Love. But not just the superficial love like that we're just going to put out here as an emotion. He says, love one another. There's fruit. There's legs. There's, there's actually substance behind this call to love. Love one another. And he says that it's a new command. Does anybody feel conflicted by that, that statement that it's a new command? Right? Because didn't somebody ask Jesus, what are the two greatest commandments? Or what are the greatest commandments? And Jesus responds with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So is this new? Is this like a replacement of those two great commandments? Or is it the addition or fulfillment of that? Well, I hope I'm leading you to the response to that. I think it's the addition and fulfillment of that that does indeed replace it. It's all of those things. So how do we live that out? Loving God, loving others? Well, while there are divided opinions upon whether or not this is actually like replacement and we shouldn't consider the Old Testament, I wouldn't come to that conclusion. I would say that the Old Testament commands are good for us. They teach us how to live a life that glorifies God, but they're not binding to us like they were binding to Israel. Jesus' words are binding to us. There's one commentator that agrees with me on this. He says, this one statement formulates the duties of those who would participate in the new covenant that Jesus initiates in his death and resurrection. And the rest of the New Testament, the disciples show the, that the, this means the, that the old covenant has been made obsolete. Never in Acts onward do the apostles teach the church to celebrate the feasts of the old covenant, to circumcise their, their sons or new converts, to observe the sabbatical year, to keep kosher, to engage in a Leverite marriage. The old covenant and Mosaic law have been nullified with the passing away of the Israelite theocracy and the institution of Christ's worldwide kingdom. The righteousness of God displayed in the old covenant is likewise displayed in the new, but stipulations and terms of the new covenant are not like the covenant God made with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. That is really a fancy way to say what's primary, what Jesus is commanding for believers. This new command, love one another. I hope that John 13, 1 is ringing in your ears right now. What is this new command based off? Jesus' own example to the disciples. Jesus knew the hour had come to depart from the world to come to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world until the end. Later in John 13, in the foot washing, verse 15, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Jesus is showing, commanding, and then expecting these believers to follow him. Notice the impact of this, too. It's not just in verse 34. That's not just an isolation. Just love one another, right? Just think about the other people here in the church. That is a, a primary thing that he is saying, yes, indeed, 
But notice the implication of that in verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. How does the world know that we follow Jesus? Not by the way we love them. Not necessarily. But especially how we love each other. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I just can't get into church because those Christians, they just bite back each other and they are just nasty. Have you heard that? I've definitely heard that. Right? Christians, they say these things, but they don't live up to these things. What a bad testimony that leaves for our world. If we can't love each other well, how can the world around us see the love of Jesus? Now, it doesn't mean that we have to agree with everybody on everything, right? Because there are plenty of brothers that I love that I just disagree with. But the impact of our love for one another, a love that reflects the love of Jesus, a love that goes to the end, shows a testimony to the world that all they can do is say, that's got to be different. It's got to be something that they believe. It has to be because of Jesus. So how can we love one another? Well, the New Testament gives us lots of commands about how we can love one another and serve one another. And I think that those are really beneficial. I would especially encourage you to read Ephesians 4 in light of these things. But there are a few things that I think I could highlight for us as a particular church this morning. They may not be directly within commands of Scripture, but I think they are from principles that we can carry from Scripture. So I'm going to suggest at least three for us today. How can we love one another? This may not come as a surprise but through church membership. Through church membership. You may be thinking, what do you mean? When I say that, what I mean is this. By joining a church and committing to God's gospel work in a particular place with a particular group of people, that's what I mean by church membership. Sometimes organizations have that in a very formal manner. Sometimes it's in a very informal manner. Nonetheless, I think that as Christians, we should love each other by committing to God's gospel work and committing to one another in that. Because when we join a church, it's not merely about joining an organization. The church is a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Someone once put it that a church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together to worship God to affirm one another by the ordinances, and to live together as God's family. Belonging to a church is one of the ways that we exercise this week-in and week-out command to love one another well. We may not feel like it Sunday morning, but when we come Sunday morning, we gather together with God's people, we hear His word proclaimed, and we worship Him, we talk to each other, we pray with each other. What are we doing? We're actually giving flesh to that command, love one another. Why? Because first of all, we denied ourselves by actually getting out of bed, right? And getting to church, like, hey, that is a celebration, right? If you've got kids, man, it is a huge celebration when you can get out the door and be with other people, right? And there's such a temptation in our world right now to just, like, click on a website and tune into something on a computer. There's great technology. I'm super thankful for technology in some ways, but I also like, need to put it in its place. It doesn't replace being with people. Like, I've watched wonderful conferences, conferences that I've even been part of, 
like the basics conference with Alistair Begg. That's coming up in May. And I'm going to watch it because I can't drive out this year. But there's something different when you're hearing people sing praises to the Lord through a, a screen and they're scanning across and you get to see all the people there. You're like, oh, that's cool. I kind of wish I was there. But when you're standing next to a brother or sister who's screaming their absolute lungs out, singing, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God, that, that's just different than what you get on a screen. Nothing's like it. Or even if it feels like it might be a thin week for church attendance and you're hearing the people around you singing, behold our God. That declaration, there's nothing that can replicate that through an online medium. It just can't happen. It's not the same. Now, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bad thing, but it's not the main thing, that's for sure. We need to be around each other. If we think of all the ways that we see God's commands in Scripture, like pray for one another, serve one another, encourage one another, live at peace with one another, be kind to one another, build one another up with the Word of God, how does this happen? It happens in the context of being together. Being committed to a church helps us to flesh this out. And now, let me say again, loving other people is often difficult and inconvenient. It may even feel like, at times, other people are slowing you down (laughs) or frustrating you. (laughs) It could feel like those two things, right? But these commitments actually help us to obey the command to love one another. Membership holds us accountable to exercising the love Jesus commands as his people. It's why we say in our church's covenant that we promise that we will endeavor by God's grace to walk in brotherly love. That's what church membership is about. Loving one another. Serving. The second way is that we can serve one another. So last week we highlighted a number of teams where people could serve within the ministries of the church, like hospitality and tech and kids ministry. But outside of that, I want to give you really practical ways to serve other people in your church. Here's number one. You ready for this? I think it's hugely transformational, but it's super simple. Have somebody over for dinner. (laughs) Have somebody over for dinner. Some of my favorite times with people in our church is when we're just around a meal and I am just myself and either hear them laugh or hear them cry or hear them explain what's in their heart. There's so much the Lord does over a meal. Cook somebody a meal. Ask them about their job. Ask them what they enjoy. But friends, don't just ask them about what's going on. Ask them what they fear. Ask them what they love. Ask them how God's at work in their life. Ask them how the scripture is informing their their everyday decisions. Ask them what they learned in their sermon. Ask them if they're struggling to keep up with their Bible reading plan. Ask them if they're discouraged. And as you ask those questions, don't just think about the next question. Listen. Listen to them. Listen to them pour out their hearts. And please, Don't let people leave your house without praying with them. Don't let them leave without praying. 
So first, yeah, have a meal in your home. Second, this is like a right now application, okay? I want you to look around. Take note of the people that are right in front of you. You front rowers, you're welcome. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> okay, look at the people that are behind you. Okay. Recognize their faces. Some of you may be like, I gotta figure out who these people are right now. <laughs> look to the left. Look to the left. Hey wall, how are you? <laughs> Look to your right. Guys, every week, I want you to take notice of who's around you. I want to encourage you, even like in your bulletin, maybe you don't have a notebook right now, but take your bulletin, write down a name of somebody that maybe you don't know that well that's in front of you or behind you or left to you, right to you. Write down their name and pray for them this week. That's a really simple way you can serve somebody this week. Pray for them. And maybe you're like, I don't know what I should pray. Pray that they would know the love of Christ that the church has for one another. It's a great way for you to think of how you can love somebody and serve them this week. Maybe you pray that they would hear and respond to God's word as they worship with us. Pray that God would even show you how you could encourage them. Take note of who's in front of you this week. Pray for them. And then finally, encourage people when you see Christ displayed in and through them. Notice that, how I said that? Encourage people when you see Christ displayed in and through them. I did not say flatter them. We don't need your flattery. <laughs> what we need is encouragement. Encouragement is different than flattery. Encouragement is rooted in the work of Christ. Do you see the grace of God at work in anyone within our church? I can think right now there's one person that's coming to my mind. It's Pete. I see the work of Christ in Pete. Often, in our small group, he asked us to pray recently that God would help him work at praying for someone every day in our church. And he said that, and I was overwhelmed by the love of Christ that he has for our people. He's working his tail off all the time, hard hours, grinding it out for his family, but if you're somebody in need, I can, t I can tell you countless testimonies of people who have gone, this just broke in my house, and I didn't know where to go, and what did I do? I called Pete. <laughs> you know what happened? Pete showed up. Pete, brother, thank you for showing the love of Christ to our people. It's been such an encouragement to see that on display for our body. Thank you for leading that way. Yeah, amen. There's another guy that comes to my mind right now who's not with us, but it's Jeff. He's in D.C. right now. Last week, uh, we had Maple Fest here in town. And when Maple Fest comes to Hebron, Hebron goes crazy. People forget how to drive. 
They forget what a crosswalk is. <laughs> they become ravenous wolves because they smell the glory of the food trucks. <laughs> And one of the things that just came up in our minds was like, we need, like our parking lot becomes utter chaos when Maple Fest is here. And I, I sent a note out to the church that said, hey, if anybody can serve and just direct people either to or from the parking lot on Sunday morning so that our people can come in and park and worship together, that'd be awesome. Within minutes, Jeff was like, I'll be there. I can do that. Now, if you know Jeff, here's something you know about him. He doesn't like to get up early. <laughs> and Jeff got up for church early that week to come and to serve our people by helping just move some cones around. And not only that, he took like some great, wonderful, ungodly criticism from the world that was around us as people get angry as they come up and see cones in our parking lot. Jeff was the barrier to the church that week. But not only that, like he was, he was holding the gate for us. He was making sure that you guys were served. What a wonderful example. Not earth-shattering things, but they display the work of Christ. Why did Jeff want to do that? So that we could come and worship together. That was what's in his heart. And finally, one way I just want to encourage our entire church body as we think about serving and loving each other, I want you to think about particularly how we give. How we give to our church. Our finances, our time, our energy. One of the ways that I've been super encouraged by our church body in this season has been particularly through how you guys have come to bat for those that have been in our congregation and struggling particularly how they've been struggling financially. And man, I just feel like I need to encourage people who have received that, that have been honest about like their need for help. That's the first hurdle. Honesty to say, hey, I, I need some help here is huge. But not only that, I can think of some things that we've done with our benevolence fund recently. Like we have, we've paid months of someone's mortgage payment. We have been able to relieve financial pressures for people who have been laid off and don't know what they're going to do next. We've been able to help with gas for hospital trips back and forth. Been able to help when things are just really tough in family situations. Week to week, as we give to our church's financial budget for the purposes of the gospel work, we have to remember we're not just doing this to collect money so that we can pay our bills and keep open. We're doing this to serve each other through the gospel. I think sometimes we, we forget that. But I'm so encouraged to see the ways that our church is responding to people and saying, you have a need, I'm here for you. Right? Because sometimes we may not know what it's like to be in the middle of that trial or circumstance. Maybe you haven't lost your job. Maybe you don't have kids in the hospital. Maybe you haven't had to face a really tough, broken family situation. Maybe you haven't been in those shoes. And so maybe you don't feel like you have the right words to say. But you can do things like cook a meal, give some extra cash to help somebody who's in real need. Guys, that displays God's love for us and for one another. 
Well done, brothers and sisters. Keep at it. Also think about just the general ways that our church's budget, yes, does it go to operations? Yeah. But guys, like, I got to say, I'm encouraged. If it wasn't through the church's giving, I couldn't devote my life's work to the work of the gospel. There's only one employee. It's me. But if I didn't have you guys, if you guys didn't give, if you didn't sacrificially give back to the Lord what he's given to you, I couldn't devote my life to doing this work. Praise God. I think of some of our missionaries, like Mike and Denisa, who are in Romania. Man, I just asked him recently about his salary. It is peanuts. Peanuts. Compared to what we think we, we can do, like here. Like our poverty line doesn't even begin to touch his salary. But in Romania, he's able to do gospel work based on the peanuts that are his salary. And our church contributes to that. I mean, I would love to be able to give more to our missionaries. <laughs> and we, we may not have the means to do that, but what we are doing is going to spreading the gospel. That's through our giving. That's one way we love each other. And not just that, our time. Yesterday, there were a number of brothers who came and lifted those pews up from the bottom floor up to the top floor of the balcony, which was way more complicated than you may have imagined. <laughs> and it was a bit nervy. I think Courtney may have had a heart attack as she was watching us lift these things up to throw them into the balcony. <laughs> but you know what it was? It was like, okay, yeah, hey, I can come out on a Saturday. We're, we did that in an hour. It wasn't anything earth-shattering. A few hands and an hour of time, we were able to put more seats up in the balcony so that this Easter, Lord willing, people can be in those seats and in the chairs that are around you. That was through somebody's sacrifice of time. There was somebody in our church body, she's not here this morning. Friday she came and cleaned. She was here for like three, four hours cleaning the church. It was pretty funny because she scared me like three times and totally locked herself out once and I had headphones in so it took like 10 minutes to actually get her back into the church building <laughs> but she came and she sacrificed her time to clean so that the church looked nice so that we could come and gather for worship there are ways that we can serve each other in our time too in all of this what are we to do we're to love one another to the glory of God it takes intentionality but we have to see that it's rooted in a command from Jesus. Guys, this isn't a you should do this. This is a you must do this. That's Jesus' language here. You must do this so that the world can know me. How can we glorify God? By loving one another. And notice how Jesus loved us to the end. So we must also love one another to the end. Not just when it's convenient. Not just when we're here in this moment. But to the end. As long as God would have us here. By his power and his grace. May we do so. Lord we thank you. That you are the God who saves. The God who loves. The God who is at work. 
and redeeming our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the power of Christ to work this week at loving one another well. May we do it not just for this week or month or year, but may we do it to the end. And we need your strength, Lord God, to do this. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.